Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. This is season three, Back to the Killing Fields. This season, we are revisiting the Texas Killing Fields. In the following episodes, we will cover a broader area. This is in an effort to connect some of the cases covered in season one. We plan to bring to you some of the known serial killers in this broader area that may have murdered some of the women in the Texas Killing Fields. We will also cover some of the victims that we did not cover in season one. Season three, Back to the Texas Killing Fields, episode 13, the Lover's Lane Murders. So uh, we kind of came across this episode when a friend of ours at work had suggested uh, that maybe we cover this case. And neither one of us had really heard of it before, right. so we just kind of went all in. So that's kind of how we came across this one. Yeah, so although this case does take place in Houston, um, so it's a little bit farther away than some of the other cases that we've covered still kind of important to those activities that were going around at the time. And um, like you said, we hadn't really heard of it. So it was when she suggested that we cover it, I was like, okay. And I took a look at it and I have to tell you, I started reading and it's definitely one of the strangest and most interesting crime scenes that I have read and come across in a while. Right. I mean, it's completely different than what we've been covering mm -hmm. for sure. So, so on August 21st, 1990, 22 year old Cheryl Henry was a beautiful blonde, fun loving young woman who was home for the summer and living in Houston with her sister. Cheryl worked at an optometrist office um, for the summer. She was a student at Stephen Austin State University and had plans to go back and finish her education. She met 21-year-old Garland Andrew, Andrew Atkinson, who goes by went by Andy to everybody, to all his friends called him Andy. And part of this probably was that his dad's name was also Garland. And so primarily everybody referred to his father as Garland and um, him as Andy. They were introduced um, to each other by some friends. Basically, you know, hey, I think you'd get a kick out of my friend Andy. They met and shortly after they met um the couple started dating and they were pretty much inseparable andy was kind of this fun loving attractive young man he had these emerald green eyes um and kind of had joked with people about hey he wanted to become a model um and he probably he had the looks for it mm -hmm. that's probably time. the personality too and the two of them just you know, sometimes I think, you know, when you hear about uh, them, it just seemed like that was one of those young couples that everybody was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the two of them together made sense. They had only been dating for roughly about two weeks when, again, on August 21st, 1990, they went out on a date. It was a Wednesday night. They went out to the um, a Houston nightclub called Bayou Mama and Bayou Mama was a up I mean it was the place to be um 
a ton of headlining bands were playing there um, throughout its history. It's no longer there, but it was it was the place to go and hang out. They had gone out on this date. They were double dating with Cheryl and her younger sister and her boyfriend. After the night's over, they kind of split up and go their separate ways. Um, and they ended up, um, Andy and Cheryl ended up on what is referred to as uh, kind of a lover's lane um, area the wooded area at the end of a colder cul-de-sac um in off of highway six and enclave parkway um and so this area is now developed mm -hmm. um if you were to go out there today um it wouldn't be anything like what you were seeing back then but back then it was just kind of a secluded place that you could pull off and you know make out hang out have some privacy listen to music and it seems from the description of everything that's kind of what they were doing um the car um is turned on there's a cassette tape in the player the seats are kind of reclined back and um so they were basically going there to park and make out uh, the evening of the 22nd, a police officer on patrol located Andy's car. It was a white Honda Civic. Um, and once he located that car, he was able to dispatch back and found that the family had actually reported the couple missing. Um, what had happened was they um, had discovered that she hadn't gone to work the morning and so her sister got worried called the parents and then they're calling andy's family and at that point in time the family did go to the police and report them missing i mean that was pretty pretty quick uh, for them to actually go and be reported too i mean you're looking at a day yeah mm -hmm. it was um and it seems like that the family was out looking that definitely was going on whether or not police officers were actively looking it's hard to say it was such a short period of time between the report coming in and then the car actually being discovered and when the car is actually discovered the officer notices one that the keys are in the ignition um he notices that there is a purse on the floorboard and a pair of shoes on a floorboard side and then he also notices that there's blood in the car so calling back and finding out that there's this missing persons case at that point in time i think they had no question that something had gone wrong right right um and so they do call in the canine dogs and the dogs quickly find Cheryl's naked body face down with her hands tied behind her back about 200 yards away um, from the car buried underneath a stack of rotting boards. That night, her clothes were also found nearby and it was determined that they had been cut off her body. When they found her jeans, they found that her underwear were stuffed into her jeans pocket. And then the scene um, at that night, it's getting so dark that really they have to call off the search. Mm -hmm. um, and so they basically kind of post a guard out there. They call off the search. They come back the next morning. And at that point in time, they are really noticing that this scene is is strange. Um, so 
above Cheryl's body, there are tied some balloons in the tree. They're pretty deflated, but they're kind of there in the tree, um, giving it kind of a twisted setting. There's also a crisp $20 bill laying next to her. Um, it was determined that she had been raped and that her throat had been slashed. Um, and it was, her throat was actually slashed three different times. It was three different ragged slashes across her throat. Um, and then police did find uh, Andy's body that next day. Um, they actually found him really quickly that next day. He was only about 100 yards from Cheryl's body. And he was sitting with his back against a tree, his hands tied uh, behind his back there and his throat was also slashed so severely that it was almost to the point of decapitation you know what was also weird though about this crime scene was you know the golf club and those three you know golden balls that were almost making that arrow pointing toward her right yeah so they've got yeah so it's just weird it's a strange thing because and the you know so the police are kind of left questioning you know you have this golf club and these three balls that make an arrow pointing in her direction and the balloons um, the balloons the 20 dollar bill um the whole thing i mean you think about this and to me i'm like what's the point of this staging right Right. like like it's it's weird i mean like the arrow pointing toward her and then almost like you're having a party or something like you know with the balloons like it's it's weird well and it does seem like these balloons were either there that evening and it was just kind of a coincidence that she happened to be under that or that um he discovered them kind of in the area and then tied them to the tree um Even if he had brought them with him, you know, just like a little bit of background kind of on balloons, like, you know, just being in the elements, they would have looked worn like that, even if they were freshly brought there. Right. So because it was chilly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think about that, too. They would have been uh, like looking deflated or even if it was hot, because you never know here, you know, the heat would do that. too. So, I mean, it's possible that he brought those fresh. Like, it's just weird to me. Well, and. And so there was a lot of talk back and forth about whether or not these things were all kind of coincidences. But to me, and I'm sure to a lot of our crime scene, I mean, our true crime friends, for what they say about true crime is there are not coincidences yeah. in true crime. Yeah, no, I mean, this looks pretty staged, but when I think about it, like, what's the point? Well, and it, if know? it was one thing. You yeah. know, if it was just simply the balloons being there, yeah. but then you have the golf balls and the golf club. And and that's the other thing. What is up with the golf balls and the golf club? Because it doesn't seem like that would be something that you would find just laying around in this area. No, and it's not like it was a park where there's like park benches right. and like where people might have a get together or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's definitely not happening in the area. No, so. this is a wooded area. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, it, like all that was brought brought with him it's just weird you know unless it was in their car unless you know the golf club again but what you know when you think it would have came out like oh andy was an ad golfer that's his golf clubs you know what right it doesn't seem like any of this was ever tied to the victims in this case Mm -hmm. i mean you know the police did not release this information right away they released it several years later but they never said 
this is these are things that are tied to the victims in this case and the victims had things with them you know what we know is that andy had his wallet in his back pocket when he was found and he also had his watch on him now what we can't say for sure is whether or not the $20 bill came out of his wallet but what they do know is that $20 bill was placed next to her body or near her body and that does seem purposeful you know um it's kind of weird though that it wouldn't have just blown away either i know like it could have been on her or you know i mean we don't really know right but i mean you would think within a day there's with them feeling like it was purposeful i almost wondered whether or not it was almost weighted down Mm -hmm. you know um but it just seemed like they were pretty sure that that had been placed there on purpose yeah and like how common are gold golf balls you know what i mean like that doesn't seem like a very common i would think it's incredibly uncommon to have golf balls and a golf club out in this area Mm -hmm. they're not just laying around out there yeah, you're not shooting golf balls and thinking you're going to go find them. Yeah, <laughs> not out I mean, there in the wooded area. Yeah, you know, and even then, you're not leaving your club. Exactly. You know? Those are hundreds of dollars, right? A good one, right? A good yeah. one. So, um, so investigators believe that Andy had been tied to the tree prior to Cheryl being taken aside, raped, and killed. So that would mean that Andy was there when that was happening watching or hearing i mean in the dark i don't that far distance he wouldn't have been able to necessarily see what was happening to her but he would have heard it yeah you don't know if that creep had a flashlight on her though either you that's true I mean? like that's true because it would seem plausible to me that he's tied her tied him up to to purposely watch this happen to her you know it's so it definitely seems like that you know i mean i'm sick So in September of 1990, police announced that there was a $10,000 reward leading to an arrest. Andy's father was hopeful that the reward would lead to an arrest. He said that there was no reason that anyone young or old would be brutalized in the way that these two had been brutalized. Um, At this point in time, though, there's also quite a bit of speculation of whether or not, like, the person who I went out there and did this did not intend to kill this couple. I, I mean, it looks very intentional to me. Well, like, apparently, you know, maybe he killed Cheryl first and then doubled back and thought that he had to kill Andy because he couldn't, you know, couldn't leave a witness. I don't tend to think that. I think he went out there with the intention of killing them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, well, okay, well, he's obviously slashed her throat three times. It may have just taken that many times for him to get it right. Right. You know, and then he goes to Andy. He's like, well, I got this now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's weird. So, I mean, I definitely think he intended from the very beginning to kill them. Mm -hmm. The police did have some suspects in the beginning of the case. They did not announce who those suspects were, but one by one, they were able to clear many of them. And then with the use of DNA, they were able to clear all the rest of them. another one of those cases that gets held up in the Houston crime lab debacle um, with the HPD. crime lab being shut down because of them not 
being qualified to test DNA evidence and also testifying to things that were not necessarily true. But in this case, they actually went back and had all the DNA independently verified, compared that again to these um, suspects, and at that time were able to rule out all of those suspects. It was at this time also that the DNA was um, compared to other open homicide cases, and it did not match any other open homicide cases at that time. So the next thing that happens in this case is in March of 2001, a uh, letter arrives at the, at the um, Houston Police Department, and the letter is um, addressed to H. PD Homicide Division with the return address being Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson. It was postmarked March 1st with the Houston postmark. You know what? I didn't realize this until we're just now recording, but with the use of that, them saying Andy, yeah, it's almost like they know them, know him, because that's what his friends would call him. People right. knew him. So, um, you know, or maybe maybe I'm just over like thinking that because, you know, I'm trying to think back when I started doing the research in this case because he is early on referred to by his full name mm -hmm. um, in the early newspaper articles, and then later in later newspaper articles they do refer to him as as Andy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm just I would have to look back to verify whether or not in any of those original first articles he was ever referred to as Andy. And if you could get that information off the um off of the media. Um the problem with that too is you know that um this case was also widely covered on um on news media mm -hmm. too um and so that information i i'm not seeing whether or not he was you know if when people did interviews whether or not they could have picked it up but it does sometimes seem like he has a personal relationship mm -hmm. you know um or and, whoever wrote the right, letter did had yeah whoever wrote the letter seemed to you know not use that full full name mm -hmm. um but again this is this is somebody who's toying with people mm -hmm. because using the victim's name as the return address is, is really sick. Um, but in the letter, inside the letter, it states, if you want to know who killed a period Atkins, it will cost you a hundred thousand dollars. Reply, reply how the Chronicle personal column Monday on 3-12-2001, only a lawyer will be hired to make sure you play straight. And then it's signed A-N-O-N, -N, which is anonymous. Um, there's a couple things in this letter that I find very interesting. And one is when he says only a lawyer will be hired, he actually uses just the letter B for be hired, not spelling be out. Mm -hmm. And also he says to make sure you play straight, um, he only uses the letter U. Um, and so it's it's definitely somebody who I feel like may have spoke that way or at least written that way in other things that he would write. Um, HPD did answer the letter, um, and they did answer it long before they ever um, allowed this letter to be released to the public and asked for information on the letter. And they basically said in the um, response, we do not want to know you. 
we do want to know what you know about Henry slash Atkins. A number was given to for you to send a lawyer or to contact with us directly on, and then it says on playing straight. And the police waited a long time, but never got a reply. And then at that point in time, the police did release the letter, hoping that somebody would um, know the handwriting or the mannerisms here on this. The FBI was also contacted um, to do a profile on this case. And the FBI concluded that this was a person who committed the crime, knew either Cheryl or Andy, and possibly both of them. They believed that the covering of Cheryl's body pointed to a relationship and it may have not been the intention to kill Andy. The rest of the profile stated that the suspect was about the same age as the victims and he was of average intelligence but a low achiever and may have been contacted by police. So there's a few things here and some of those are things that we have talked about too, which is, you know, that thought process that, you know, it does seem like this person might have possibly known these mm -hmm. victims. The other thing that kind of sticks out here is that this person would have been roughly about the same age as these victims. Yeah, that does seem kind of um, unusual, really, because right. you would think that they would prey on people that were like maybe younger than or uh -huh. more vulnerable than they are, yeah. you know, so that is kind of weird. But then when they say that they knew either Cheryl or Andy, but possibly both of them, that would mean that this person would have met one or the other one in those two weeks. Mm -hmm. Because even though they were introduced by friends, it doesn't seem like their friend group was completely hanging out together. Because Andy had just moved back to the Houston area. He had graduated from college in North Carolina and had moved back to um, live with live near his father. And so he wasn't as from the area. But um, and she was going to going to school and then had come back for the summer. So you're talking about a relatively short period of time mm -hmm. um, when somebody would have met both of them, you know, right. together yeah. as a couple. Um, and then really, there's not any movement on this case until in 2008, the police had a description of the suspect, a white man in his mid thirties, about six feet tall, 180 pounds. He had brown hair, brown eyes, and maybe a mustache and olive colored skin. The reason they had this description of the suspect was that a DNA match had been found. The DNA was found at a crime scene to another open case. And that was the case of a rape and robbery. So we don't know the name of the victim in this case. The attack that had taken place a few months before Cheryl and Andy's murder, but police were just now testing the DNA found on Cheryl, loading it onto CODIS, and the victim in the case who survived was able to describe her attacker to police. This woman was a 30-year-old topless dancer who worked at a nightclub called Gigi's Nightclub. The club is still open today. It's just called Gigi's uh, Cabaret. It was about 2.30 a.m. when she arrived home, found a man with a fishnet stocking over his head in um, her apartment bedroom. He was wearing some type of blue uniform. Police investigated said possibly he was a security guard due to the uniform. But maybe it was possible 
we know a lot of people who do wear blue uniforms. And one of the things that we do know is that a lot of these plant workers do wear blue mm-hmm. uniforms. Mechanics wear blue uniforms. They would be different than police officer uniforms. But again, you're being attacked in your own home. You know, I don't know. I mean, but uh, like uh, officer's uniform would be like easily identified, right? Because they have patches and they have embroidery and stuff like that on them, you know? Like, and yeah, but security uniforms do look very similar. Yeah, no, and I get that too. But you know, the plant workers, though, the odd thing about that is most of the time their names are on their uniforms. yeah, their names are on. You know, so um, but security plant workers uniforms do look mm-hmm. very very similar to what you would see at security of any other place. Right, right. Even security at other nightclubs. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when we're talking about security at other nightclubs, clearly the nightclub that Cheryl and Andy was at, the Bayou Mamas, that does have security in it. There are people who have responded to message boards saying that there was a lot of security on nights, depending on who was there. Mm-hmm. Like who, who was playing. Who was playing, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and the fishnet stocking thing's kind of weird. I mean, that's obviously somebody who's trying to just. Uh, Hide who they yeah, are. But yeah, but I mean, you're not talking like a regular stocking. I mean, that's usually what dancers wear or like fishnets. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, you're not talking yeah. like pantyhose. I mean, no, you're, yeah, I mean, you wonder whether or not it was one of hers. Mm-hmm. You know, just like he came, he's up there in her bedroom waiting for her to come home and he throws that on. Right. You know, I mean, it's very, it's not like a pantyhose. I guess right. is what I'm saying. So, when she discovers that him there, he actually asks her where her boyfriend was. He stated that her boyfriend owed him money and the attacker asked her about her boyfriend and referred to him by name, calling him Andy. This is strange because she and the boyfriend didn't live together, so she wouldn't be expecting him home. Um, the attacker had a gun, made her put her hands behind her back. He duct taped them, and then he taunted her by putting the gun to her head and pulling the trigger, cocking it and uncocking the gun. He then placed a bag over her head. He raped her, and while he was raping her, he said a slew of vulgar and disgusting things. Um, and then he took about $250 from her and left. Um, so... She does a really, really good description. We have that picture um, of him. And so obviously, even with the fishnet stocking, she's able to see some of those features with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, there's holes in it. Yeah. It's not very disguised. (laughs) Um, But she obviously doesn't recognize him as being Mm -hmm. somebody that she knew. Yeah. and, and even if he was security at, like, say, her club, she would recognize him. She wouldn't recognize mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And the victim had recently moved and thought maybe it was a, someone associated with the moving company that had done this. Um, it was also possible that it was closer to the closer connection to the victim. She had once worked for Andy's father. Police investigated both connections but did not actually find one. Um, however, you know, this is a a kind of strange connection to have, you know, somebody who had worked for the same club that um, Andy's father was managing a club that people have stated that Andy had worked at the door of that club called dream street a couple of different times. 
I'm assuming it's just maybe to help his father out or um, something, but yeah, I mean, his dad may have been trying to get a, a you know, employment too, you know, with him yeah. just coming back into town too, so. And then the other thing that kind of comes in here that makes me start to think, okay, so this gives you an example of how he was maybe able to overpower both these victims in the car would be that he did have a gun, mm-hmm. which again, goes back to then that whole thing of, no, I think he purposely killed them Yeah, because if he basically, you know, kind of did it on accident, then why, if you have a gun, which we know he had access to, because this crime happens before, if you have that gun, then it's not like you shot them. He purposely yeah. slit their throats. Okay, but did he shoot d- the dancer? No, he never. Okay, he so left her a lot. He brings the gun and doesn't shoot her with it. No, he threatens her with it. Threatens her with it. Okay, and but then you think, okay, and we know they're connected. Yes, right. DNA so connects them. You go from a gun to like, cutting throats. That's just like a dangerous, like really dangerous person. You know, that's yeah, kind of crazy. I'm thinking that 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 would be part of his fantasy. Mm you know, is, is he's acting out a part of his fantasies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the gun would have allowed him to have control over them, get them um, taped up. But, you know, that part of his fantasy would have been to actually kill them. And I mean, he might've been smart enough to know if I shoot them, the bullets can be tested against this gun. Sure, or it might have you know, been more that he was worried about somebody hearing. That's true, too. But again, you're not that worried about somebody hearing when you're in the woods and having two victims screaming. I'm sure. Yeah, so I don't know how worried you are about somebody hearing you shoot them. Yeah, but you know, it's weird about gunshots, though, because, like, that gun range is up the street, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can hear that, but yeah. then I don't necessarily hear the kids screaming at the park that's closer. Okay. Right? If you think about it like that. So maybe maybe it wasn't that. I don't I, I don't know. I'm just saying like it's, it's I don't know, it's weird. The other thing that kind of, you know, I look at this this case and I just actually, you know, I just keep thinking that maybe this guy was acting out a zodiac fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, that like a copycat or Yeah, that he had done some research on the um zodiac murders and so, you know, he wanted to act out that fantasy. But again, when you look at this type of case then, you know, you only have these two cases that are connected through DNA. I mean, that's not necessarily to say that there couldn't possibly be other cases out there, but so far, with all of today's testing, they haven't come out and said that they have connected him to any other cases. Right. So he either did this and stopped, or he did this and something else stopped him. Mm-hmm. Like, he went to prison, his DNA may not have had to be tested, and so, you know, we've seen that in other cases where, you know, I mean, we've even had people put to death, and their DNA was not tested, and then it was later with with genetic genealogy or something that came back and said, wait a second, it's this serial killer who was put to death. So we don't really know. If he died in a car crash, would they have necessarily taken his DNA? No. You know, like if, if he, even if he died, well, yeah, if he just died, but Uh you know, like something, 
random happened. Yeah, the only the only way that his DNA would be taken is if I mean, even back then in the nineties, um I mean they would have had been, a subs- like suspected him right you know yeah they would have had to suspect him um maybe being involved in a similar crime Mm -hmm. you know your dna could have possibly gotten tested but even then it's so early on you can see where his dna wouldn't get tested and then you really have to get up into the so much closer to where we are now before you even get arrestee dna Mm -hmm. tested and that kind of thing tested and so it's very possible that he went you know, that he may have been involved in other crimes and his DNA may have not ever gotten tested. Yeah, because they may have not even taken DNA from those crimes. Either. Well, right. You know, and then, you know, there's one possibility. And again, the message boards are out there putting the possibility of a connection to the Tara Suet, Suzette Breckenridge case. And um, on August 4th, 1992, Tara Suet, Suzette uh, Breckenridge was a 23-year-old woman who worked at a as a waitress at the Houston nightclub called the Men's Club. And this club was located near uh, Bayou Mamas. And on August 4th, the club was slow, so the manager asked some of the waitresses if they wanted to go her- home early about 1 a.m., Tara volunteered to leave. She was last seen talking to a security guard who basically walked her out to her car. And that's actually very typical in this time period of having security walk them out to their car because there were other incidences of these women being attacked in the Houston area. And I actually think that's pretty much protocol with dancers and stuff like that because of the the Johns, if you want to Uh like that, right? So, Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they're easily preyed upon Mm -hmm. by Absolutely by people especially um, in houston so tara's car was a red pontiac fiero it was found abandoned on the side of the road in the 1200 block of west loop near 12th street around 2 30 a.m the car was locked and reports say the flashers was were off and the alarm was too but later it was determined that the car's alternator belt was missing now they don't really say this about about the they do say about the flashers being off, so they didn't think that she was trying to get anybody's help. But when I asked mechanics about this, they were like, yeah, if the alternator belt was missing and the reason that the car died was because the battery had drained. They're like, she wouldn't have been able to turn her flashers on either. So even if she tried, she probably would have turned them right back off because they wouldn't have worked. So it would have been pointless anyway. Yeah. Um, and um, so... Tara was gone. Still to this day, there are no leads in her case. She has never been found. Her boyfriend was thoroughly investigated and thought to be a suspect. Their relationship was not great. There were definitely things in their relationship where he could sometimes not be the greatest spot guy. Her boyfriend was in a nearby club playing pool. He apparently left the club for about an hour and a half uh the car was located about two miles from where he was playing pool and the confusing thing is so i get two different stories on this one story says that he's the one who discovers the car and the other story says that it was the police who discovered the car and then later let him know so i'm not real sure what exactly is um true about this i have found that um he was interviewed by police there are points where he has said that he was ruled out by them 
possibly because, you know, he had, you know, witnesses who could put him in a certain place. But I know that the court of public opinion certainly looks very strongly upon him. But this is somebody who is interacting with a security guard, too. Right. So, you know, it is a security guard at that club. So, you know, you never know. But I do think that there, I do think that this case bears some eerily similar markings, too. So, you know, I think that it. But they never found her to even do DNA testing. and. And DNA testing on the car wouldn't have been necessarily done and and probably wouldn't have showed you anything either. Because even if she, the car died and she got out to like flag down help or start walking or anything like that, somebody wouldn't have had anything involved in the car. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really know. But it does, it does make you wonder. It's certainly worth looking at. I mean, there's definitely enough... Um... Like connecting points yeah. there, you know, the clubs and the security guard thing. And, you know, it's just, it's all kind of strange. But if that is a connection there too, then that would make him still active in 92. If he's the one who wrote the letter in 2001, then we know that he was out in 2001, able to write a letter that wouldn't have had a postmark from a prison or anything. Right. And alive. And I think as much as this guy did at the crime scene to i don't know stage it stage it or or you know play with police or or whatever he was doing there the letter to me makes sense Mm -hmm. you know it just seems like that's definitely connected um and then when you look at his picture you know the drawing of him to me the profile kind of makes sense it does look like somebody who would be relatively about their same age. Yeah, I mean, he looks like he's clean cut, too. I mean, I don't know. I mean, he just looks like an average guy. Yeah. You know, there's nothing that's really... When you, and we'll put it on our Facebook page, but, you know, you just don't really see anything that stands out about him. No, unfortunately, you know. um, You know, there's not like a mole or... But what the hope is, if you add kind of the wording and maybe the handwriting and some of that with the letter and then other things that maybe it would trigger somebody to be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, is so and so. Yeah. So. But I, you know, I have to thank our friend at work for bringing us this case. It, uh certainly is very interesting and you know my hope is that well not only hope but if i were the perpetrator in this case thanks for joining us today we always love to hear from our listeners so please contact us with any questions that you might have Um, you can reach us on our facebook page bodies in the bayous you can always email us at bodies in bayous at hotmail.com And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.